This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Good morning and welcome to the August 16th, 2021 For Your Benefit radio show. We're here today. We're going to talk about retiring early under FERS. Could it work for you? And who best leads us in that discussion is Bob Bronstein. Bob, besides being a fine individual, is a federal benefits um, specialist, a retired Fed, so he knows, and he's been doing this for a a fair number of years. We'll leave the number out, huh, Bob? (laughs) Yeah, that's okay, Bob. It's been over 15 years with NITP. (laughs) Okay, very good. So we'll talk about the first early retirement scenario is one of the lesser known but more flexible retirement options under FERS. But we're going to talk about a number of other things, and Bob is, I believe, locked and loaded. So, uh, Bob, take us, to, take us to the hoop. Okay. So the topic today is early retirement under FERS. What is unique about this FERS early retirement? Well, unlike the old retirement plan, which many years ago I retired under, you could actually retire early under FERS at your own discretion. Now, the way I left the government, just to give us a little bit of background, was under an early out opportunity. My agency gave me a letter saying, would you like to retire early? And I was at the age, actually, I had the service to be able to do that. Typically, when you're given an early out offer, which is often often accompanied by a buyout, voluntary separation incentive pay, the two criteria are to, number one, reach the age of 50 with at least 20 years of service or... The one criteria, if you have 25 years of creditable service, you get the offer, you can retire. Uh, Sometimes uh, these situations manifest if you lose a job. Maybe uh, you're subject to reduction in force and you lose your position due to lack of seniority, or perhaps your job is being transferred to another area, which is hundreds of miles away. If you meet those age and service criteria, you can be involuntarily separated and you have a retirement right then and there. But under the old retirement plan, there was no way to retire early on your own without those special circumstances. What FERS does is it's introduced a retirement plan called the minimum retirement age plus 10. Now, first of all, what is minimum retirement age for FERS? It does depend upon when you were born, but generally speaking, it's between the ages of 56 and 57. And what's unique to FERS is that if you've reached that age, and you happen to have at least 10 years of creditable service, you could retire on an immediate pension. And that would include your health insurance and your life insurance and other benefits. This is unique to FERS. You can do this on your own. And it's typically, uh, I would say, a, a retirement scenario that would be for an individual who came to federal service a bit later in life. But think about that, Bob, because normally to retire at the FERS minimum retirement age, or even under CSRS, you need 30 years. Or if you're 60, you need 20. But this gives somebody the opportunity, if they need to leave, to retire on a small pension, but have that portability of things like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, et cetera. So if somebody was um, nearing the end of their career, not on right on top of it, could they work for the 10 years, let's say they leave whatever job, or they retire from whatever job, and then they'd say, Gee, after listening to Bob talk about this 10-year boots on the ground, I'm going to have not only subsidized health insurance and the best of the best, not only an annuity with a COLA. um, Do do you see many people doing that? You know, it it truly depends. I sort of uh, mentioned this a second ago. You know, who would be the most likely candidate to pick this option? It would be someone who uh, is coming to the federal government, either mid-career or late career, uh, who might be retired from the military or spent a fair amount of time in the private sector. And they came to work for a federal position, and perhaps now it's time to move on to do something else. Um, so in a situation like that, if you are moving on to something else, it's, it's, it's a good leverage point. You've picked up another pension. You have benefits. And if you're going to work perhaps for another company and you don't need their total compensation, you can tell them, hey, I've got this uh, floor of income and other benefits. Can you give me uh, 
a signing bonus or can you give me more vacation? But typically, the MRA plus 10 scenario is for people who come to government late. Um, one of the things about the 10 years of service, and let me just, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this. It's 10 years of creditable service, but to retire in any fashion at all from federal civilian service, you have to be vested on the civilian side, meaning you need at least five years of civilian service. So for example, let's say I'd been in the private sector. I'd been in the military for five years. I didn't retire. I come to work for the government. I work five, six, seven years, whatever the case might be. And I find myself at age 57. I, I'm told by my HR people, you know, you've got creditable service of seven civilian years. You've bought back five years of military time. You're vested civilian. If you want to retire under this option, you can do that. And then they give me the opportunity to leave. And then I ask them what the pros and the cons are. But I could leave on an immediate pension with my benefits. And I'm thinking that sounds almost too good to be true. So that's sort of the, you know, you might, you as an individual doing this might ask me, what are the upsides and what are the downsides? And I had a feeling you might ask that question. So if, if you were going to, maybe I, I preempted you. I was about ready to say something, but you, you wouldn't <laughs> let go of the mic, but go ahead. All right. So Bob just asked this question. We'll say he asked the question. <laughs> what are the upsides? The upside is an immediate pension or annuity monthly payments for the rest of your life. These are what you uh, financial people call defined benefits, defined by a formula, not dependent on anything that the market does. And you get health insurance and other benefits. Health insurance, as you know, the government pays most of. Yeah, they pay about 75% roughly, and we pay about 25%. So you have that. That's the positive side. Out the door, you can go. Now, what's the downside? You're facing an age-reduced annuity. When you retire this way at your MRA, minimum retirement age, and you have less than 30 years, then for every year you happen to be under the age of 62, there's a 5% reduction to your payable pension. So if I were, say, 57 and had 20 years of service and I was going out and retiring, my annuity would be reduced by about 25% because I'm five years away from 62, five times 5%, 25%. So that's a big hit. Now, the other big hit, which we don't really have time to talk about, but we can ask about what it is, is that there's a bridge to Social Security that retirees not going out this way receive as extra money in their pension. This is called the FERS annuity supplement, loosely based on projected Social Security that OPM pays. If you retire with an age-reduced benefit, you don't get the supplement either. So from a financial standpoint, it's kind of a double hit, a reduced annuity, no bridge to social security. So that's really the downside. Upside, it's immediate pension with benefits. The downside, it is reduced. All right, when you um, you talked to a fair number of people when you do the webinars now, um, they're a little tougher to talk to because they, they have to have a mic in front of them. Um, and do you find some of the things surprising with regards to the questions that you get? You would think that, gee, don't they talk about that around the proverbial water cooler? Don't they talk about that among themselves? And uh, maybe, th maybe they're the ones that the group elected to say, call Bob up and ask him this question. <laughs> but but uh, do you find the questions, um, the normal questions, you say, gee, didn't they cover that somewhere in some kind of meeting or, or um, you know, the supervisor or the boss might say, here, you go figure this out on your own. Um, but there's got to be some things that, that cause you a little bit of uh, a surprise that people are unaware of, but they needed to be aware of because they're making life decisions based on whatever knowledge base they got. Sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting. HR tends to be a bit compartmentalized, human resources. You come on board, uh, it's an onboarding person. Somebody wants to make sure you get enrolled in health insurance, that you get to your job, that you know, you know what your income is going to be. And retirement is not really on their radar. I mean, that's something you start thinking about as time goes by. It could be an enticement. Maybe you did a little bit of research when you came to the job, recognizing the value of the benefits. But most people don't really learn about these things until they get a retirement seminar or webinar. 
the majority of people in this scenario that we're talking about, because they're coming to government late, are probably doing so because um, they're, they're looking for the, the employment's a great opportunity. Uh, again, when they come on board, they're not thinking about when can I retire. Many are surprised that they're actually able to do this. And sometimes they find out about it in a webinar that we produce or, or a seminar. Uh, so they're, they're enticed by it. Uh, typically, when people learn about MRA plus 10 and that they could retire, one of the things that a seasoned professional in the organization might ask, who's in the human capital area, might be, you know, well, you're, you're 57, you have 20 years of service, and you're going out the door. Um, don't you realize if you stuck around for another three years, you'd be 60, um, you could be able to retire without an age reduction. And not to mention the fact that you'd be eligible for that supplement that I mentioned before for at least two years until you're 62. And then the pushback on the part of the individual leavings is, is the effect. It's usually something like this. Well, you know, I'd like to stay, but I have another job opportunity. And then the HR professional would say, well, tell me about the job opportunity. Well, it's a great job. It's going to pay me uh, as much, if not more, than my federal salary. And it's something that I need to grab right now because, you know, I'm 57 and it may not be there in three years as much as I'd like to stay. And then the HR person would say, well, okay, well, it's replacement income. Does it offer you health insurance? And the person usually says, well, you know, I don't need to worry about the health insurance because I'm retired military. And I came to civilian service after retiring from the military, and I had the military health insurance called TRICARE. So I would then say, if I were the HR person, so wait a minute, you've got insurance for health. You've got replacement income from this job that's going to pay you as much, if not more, than you're getting now. Wouldn't you rather have the unreduced pension? And then, of course, the answer is, well, yeah, I would love to have that, but I've got to leave now. I have no choice. I say, yeah, you do have a choice. You could do a postponed retirement. And here's where the pushback comes. Wait a minute. Didn't I hear that? And they say a deferred retirement is only a pension that I don't get my benefits. And I'm saying, no, this is not a deferred retirement. This is postponed. There's a difference. There's the terms tend to be synonymous. I'm postponing or I'm deferring my meeting with you. But when you start talking about retirement infers the two terms could not be more different, postponed versus deferred. And do people understand that? Well, they do when I go on to the next iteration of what I'm about to tell you. Oh, good. <laughs> so let's, let's think about that. For the next, this person is 57. They've got 20 years of service. They're looking at a 25% age reduction. What if they postpone their retirement? What does that mean? Well, it means when you go out the door, you are resigning. And that's concerning for a lot of people. But you are resigning with proof from the agency from which you're departing that you could retire today. You could retire today with a pension and all of your benefits, albeit with a 25% reduction. You hang on to that proof. At the age of 60, you make a direct application to OPM for the postponed benefit. Now, mind you, while you've been postponed, there's no health insurance or anything else, but you don't need that. You have the money from the job. You have your health insurance. When you turn 60, when you apply for this benefit at OPM, you get the unreduced amount. You make up that whole 25% in three years, and you're allowed to re-enroll in all of the benefits programs. It's very, very different from a deferred retirement. Very, very different. So you could, it's like a do-over? So, so you could take choice A, and then a number of years later, you can do it over and do B? Yeah. In other words, you, you resign. Uh, you live on the income from the new job, as well as the health insurance. If you're retired military, you don't need to worry. Or you go to work for a firm, and they're giving you health insurance. You don't need to worry. And then in three years, in this example, you make up the 25%. You then make application for the pension that's now 25% larger, albeit three years later and you reinstate all of your other benefits. A deferred retirement is different. If I were 45 and I were leaving the government, say with 20 years of service, uh, I'm not eligible to retire under any circumstances. And I couldn't get proof from my agency that I was, unless I was a disability retiree, which is a, a whole different ball of wax. At 60, I would also be able to go to OPM. 
just like the individual we talked about under MRI plus 10. Well, when I hit 60, <clears throat> it's 15 years after I left. So I wasn't eligible for an immediate retirement when I left, like the other person was. When I hit 60, I can get a pension, but I don't get the opportunity to re-enroll in all the other benefits because when I, re when I separated, I was not eligible to retire. The person who's leaving with the age-reduced retirement is separating, eligible to retire, but choosing instead to postpone for three years in this example. And when they do postpone, the age reduction's gone. They're actually only going back three years to calculate what their highest three earning years were that make their benefit. In the deferred retirement example, we're going back 15 years and they don't get the opportunity to add back their health insurance, life insurance, dental and vision coverage because when they left, they were not eligible to retire. Wow. I think we need to take a break. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we're going to listen to what WEPA can do for the listeners. Never underestimate your needs when purchasing life insurance. There are important factors to keep in mind like future expenses and lifetime economic value. WEPA not only offers group term life insurance for civilian federal employees, but walks you through the important questions you need to ask yourself while reviewing your policy options. Life insurance is a conversation worth having. Why not have it with WEPA, serving civilian feds and their families since 1943? Visit WAEPA.org today. Life can be unpredictable. Stay prepared with coverage from WEPA. Civilian feds can apply for up to $1.5 million in life insurance regardless of their salary. Explore new products including group short-term disability insurance, where you can apply for benefits up to $6,500 a month to replace income while recovering from a covered short-term disability. WEPA will help shape your policy to meet your changing needs. Visit WAEPA.org today for coverage exclusively for feds by feds. Welcome back to For Your Benefit. We're here today, August 16th, 2021, with Bob Bronstein, federal benefits expert, and he's explaining the unexplainable. Uh, sound like Rod Serling and, and whatever that show was. was. <laughs> anyway, so let's get back to this. Um, when we stopped, we were, I don't think we were in the middle of something, but the trail off of a thought. Okay. Uh, the difference between postponed and deferred retirement. You know, to make matters even more confusing, uh, one typically applies, obviously, for the postponed and deferred retirement after they've separated from federal service. They do this on an application. And the application is an OPM application form preceded with the words, uh, the letters RI, stands for Retirement and Insurance 92-19. This particular application is an application for a postponed or deferred retirement, which almost gives you the idea that you could choose, but obviously you can't because the only people eligible for the postponed retirement are the people who are eligible to leave immediately, start their pension, albeit with an age reduction and take their benefits. In other words, there's, there's a five-year rule for health and life insurance. Assuming they meet all of that, all of those could go out the door with them today with a reduced pension. Those are the people who can postpone their retirement, meaning that you separate. And when you do eventually activate, for lack of a better term, your pension, you have the ability to re-enroll in all of the health benefits. Because when you left, you could have done that immediately but with a reduced annuity. Conversely, the deferred retirement, once again, I'm sounding like a broken CD, is somebody leaving at least with five years of civilian service, because you need that five years, as I mentioned before, to be vested in any retirement option, but you leave prior to being old enough. We use the example, I've got the same 20 years, but I'm leaving at 45. In that scenario, there is no immediate retirement for you other than a disability retirement, meaning you're medically disabled and there's a lot of hoops to go through to prove that anyway. Not medically disabled. I'm, I'm leaving the government. Uh, the money that was pulled out of my pay that went into the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund, that's the bucket of income that produces your annuity. I didn't pull that out. I didn't get a refund. At 60 years of age with 20 years of service, I could do it even earlier. I could, I could do it at at my MRA, but I'd be looking at the same age-reduced deferred retirement 
but the operative term here is deferred. It means that when I left, I wasn't eligible to retire in any sense. So as a result, now that I am eligible age-wise, 15 years after I left the government in this example, I'm going to get a pension, but I don't get any of the non-cash benefits, the important things like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, et cetera, because when I separated, once again, I was not eligible for any kind of immediate retirement, unlike the postponed person who was. So when you do the webinars slash seminars, what questions do you find from the class where um, you're, you had just gone through what you just did here? What don't they fully understand or they think they understand, but they just want to make sure? Sure. One of them is, all right, will I get my benefits back? Number two, um, I know that sick leave that I don't use can add to my benefit. But when I leave the government, it's kind of out there. You know, I hang on to my last pay stub. I'm not coming back to work. Is sick leave going to enhance my deferred, uh, excuse me, postponed benefit? And the answer is it absolutely will. Um, the, biggest, the biggest concern I think I have is postponed versus deferred. Um, that's where people worry about the health insurance. They're also, in many cases, uh, unaware of the age reduction, and the age reduction is a rather severe one. They're also unaware of the fact that it's MRA plus 10, because if you had 10 years but less than 20, you technically have to postpone until 62 years of age to recover the entire reduction. But if you have 20 or more, only until age 60. And the other thing, too, is that at any given point in time, uh, along the continuum from the point you leave until you reach 62, you could jump on this pension, the, uh, the postponed benefit, say I'm 58 or 59. You're still looking at some reduction, but for each year that you delay or postpone, you're picking up another 5% of what otherwise would be reduced. It's more than 5%. You're losing out of the 25%, you're getting a fifth of it back, 5% for each year. So those are things that uh, tend to come up in questions. And then the other, the other big one that I get is that, okay, well, I'm postponing. When I reach the age of 60 and I now get an unreduced annuity, technically I'm not eligible for Social Security yet. So if I go out this way and I eliminate the reduction by postponing, Am I eligible for the FERS annuity supplement? And the answer to that question is no, because when you left, it was an age reduction. You avoided the age reduction by waiting, but you didn't separate immediately in a scenario where you would be, not be reduced for age. So that's the reason the FERS annuity supplement is never on the table. You can get rid of the reduction by waiting for the pension. You can postpone it, but you never get that bridge to social security that OPM pay is also known as the FERS annuity supplement. Those right. are the kinds of questions I get. Well, we got another question just uh, emailed in. And, and the question is, is the retirement way fast approaching with federal offices being reopened to the public? What do you think? You know, the, the retirement wave that I've long since read about and predicted on my own is probably probably more real now than ever before for a lot of reasons. Uh, some people maybe don't want to come back to the workforce. They don't feel safe enough to come back to an actual you know, office. But to some extent, there's, there's a lot of bit of, uh, there, there's, a, there's a great degree of um, weariness associated with working with technological platforms like we're using today, Zoom, Teams, and so on. Many, many people who are, I like to say to myself, long in the tooth, who've been in the government for a long time, uh, are yearning for the more traditional ways of getting things done. And this has been stressful for all of us. There's no question about it. So, you know, the tipping point could very well be maybe now it's time to get back to something that would feel more traditional. So experts are predicting that there will be a, a greater outflow of folks eligible to retire this year, largely for those types of reasons. Room at the top, so to speak. For anybody who's in the government now, there are going to be opportunities to move up because those of us occupying the higher positions are going to be pursuing other other lifestyles, whether it's retirement or perhaps other work outside of the government. I think it's going to be a reality, maybe more this year than ever before. 
Bob, you're very clairvoyant because the next email that came, I'm, I'm reading this. Your guest mentioned on a previous show that he retired from federal government at age 49 with an early out. I understand he's very happy with his current job, but does he have any regrets regarding health insurance, survivor's benefits, and the TSP? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that's exactly what I did. I retired uh, early from Department of the Treasury at the age of 49. I had an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old at the time I retired, so clearly I was not retiring in the classic sense. I was uh, grabbing my pension. Uh, I was eligible for and took my health insurance and all of my other benefits with me. And my goal was to sort of reinvent myself and get back to the area of HR, human capital, that I enjoyed the most, uh, benefits, uh, because I'd been out of it for quite a while. And this opportunity to leave allowed me to go through a variety of different consulting venues and ultimately led me to the National Institute of Transition Planning. So I have no regrets. Uh, I was able to use my uh, the income that I had from uh, my civil service pension, uh, as well as my benefits as a bargaining chip uh, in the two firms that I went to work for. One actually gave me a signing bonus. Another one gave me uh, additional vacation time. Couldn't really negotiate higher salary, but that was okay, whatever. Uh, but equally important for me, uh, initially, all I had to do is get some replacement income. My pension wasn't as much as my income, but I got some replacement income. I was able to work virtually. I was able to work as a consultant. I could pick and choose the things that I wanted to do. And all of those things uh, were much, they, they freed me up uh, time-wise and otherwise to spend you know, more time with my young kids. And most importantly, to get back to an area uh, that I have a passion for, an area of HR that I have a real passion for. It allowed me to train as well. I was, I loved training. Uh, I was in training for a brief period of time, but that, that seemed to be my, my best destiny, that the knowledge that I had and more of an opportunity to be a trainer uh, because that's where I, I get my greatest rewards. I feel like I'm turning on lights. I'm helping people. And you and I both know that when you're making other people happy, it tends to make you the happiest. I, I, I have found that to be true. If I'm helping someone else and I, I, can, I can turn on lights for them to use the same term and and make them understand something that's a bit complex, something that may take a career to learn. This stuff is, is not easy. Uh, I feel, I always feel better. Uh, and I get many, many opportunities to do that in webinars, seminars, and one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions. So I have zero regrets. It was the best move of my life. Yeah, I, um, you know, I was a bean counter, still am, um, but never particularly liked the accounting side of life. I always liked the tax. And then I got introduced to, um, doing federal retirement um, um, seminars and uh, mm -hmm. did a couple. And I thought, I can do this on my own, but I got to find Bob <laughs> and Tammy and, and uh, a few others. And then we put together, you know, we did uh, two and three day uh, retirement seminars, mid-career seminars and the like. And it's just a good feel to walk out because invariably they ask questions at the break. It's not so much that now because we're doing webinars, but um, when we were doing the live ones, but the webinars, they still send questions in. <clears throat> so Absolutely. this is fun. <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's nice to keep the relationship alive too. I mean, the, <clears throat> the emails that flow in uh, after sessions like that uh, not only help me keep my edge, but uh, it, it's continuing to provide that assistance to folks. And I, I just get a, I get a big kick out of that. That's, that's, that's the best aspect of this type of work, in my opinion. Okay. In, in, in the uh, webinars, seminars, uh, um, counseling and whatnot, what do you find, um, I don't know, maybe the top two or three things where you'd go, they don't know that? And no disrespect to the person asking the question, but it's surprising sometimes where you and I might take something for granted and we know what we do but we very surprised sometimes what uh, others don't know sure uh, you know one of the things that i get um i mentioned this uh sick leave sick leave government uses as a sort of short-term disability insurance it's there's no use or lose sick leave you're in about 104 hours a year 13 days a year it accumulates without limit. And we use it for things like doctor's appointments, illnesses, taking care of family members. You can even use quite a bit of it for extremely ill family members and so on. But for people who have sick leave left over, 
it does add to the annuity benefit. And uh, there's a misbegotten notion on the part of some that, okay, I have a year's worth of sick leave. Does that give me another year's worth of service in my computation date? In other words, if I'm going to leave in December, does it give me another year? Uh, another year, like, could I add TSP and things of that nature? And the answer is no. Uh, it's, it's an add-on. It enhances the annuity value as if it were time worked, but it, it doesn't do that. Uh, another question that I get from many people is, you know, well, the annuity supplement, <clears throat> they call it a social security supplement. When in fact it isn't, it's extra money being paid by OPM. There's there's concern number one that it's going to have an impact on Social Security, and it really doesn't because it's extra pensioning that's coming from OPM. People do believe, however, that it has an impact and that it will affect what their Social Security amount would be, uh, which is absolutely not true. Uh, it stops at age 62. The other question I get too, because people think that annuity supplement's going to continue if they don't start their Social Security. When in fact, the whole basis for the supplement is that you're not eligible to start your social security uh, until you're 62 in most situations. So the supplement gets you there, but when you're 62, it ends. Well, why is it ending? I can't even draw my social security because I'm still working and I'm making too much money to get social security, I've been told. And the response to that would be, well, that's true. You're still working, but that's your choice. Were you to stop working, now that you're 62 and you qualify for Social Security, you could start the benefit. And that's, that's the position that OPM takes. It's a bridge to eligibility. So many people will confuse that. They think that the supplement might be Social Security. It has an effect on it. And they also believe that it should continue if they don't start their Social Security benefit when they are immediately eligible to do so. And it doesn't go beyond that. You know, continuing to work is a choice. Starting your Social Security at 62, you could do that. That's a choice. Okay, now, I was just, I was just saying, it's time for a break. Not, not saying Bob don't say anything more, but Andrew, the most efficient engineer known to the radio world, is going to uh, lead us in a break, and we'll hear what NITP can do for the listeners. Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's NITPinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars. Does planning for retirement seem like a daunting task? Is retirement years away? It will arrive sooner than you think. Prepare now to stay on track. Join the thousands of federal employees and retirees who have already attended National Institute of Transition Planning's free monthly webinars to learn more about retirement and financial planning. NITP is the national leader and trusted source for federal retirement information. Visit NITPinc.com to sign up for NITP's free monthly newsletter and webinar. Welcome back to the final leg of today's show. We're talking with Bob Bronstein, federal benefits expert, and, uh, and imparting the wisdom that we all so much need. Now, Bob, I get wrapped around the axle sometimes, and I don't know if this uh, question, uh, if I read it before, this question came in from a listener. Um, which pension plan would your guest select if given an option, FERS or CSRS? Did we do this? <laughs> you know... I'm, I'm always hesitant to pick and choose. And I, I always tell people I'm there to help you navigate and make the best possible choice. Well, let's, let's just take a quick look at what these two things are. And let's, we, we sort of almost need to go back to the point when FERS was installed back in 1987. <clears throat> it was an alternative to a pension only system. Uh, the CSRS program was just a pension, no TSP, uh, because you weren't paying the payroll tax or social security uh, you probably didn't get much Social Security, if at all. You could max out the pension if you worked 41 years and 11 months as a civilian, maybe bought back some military service, whatever the case might have been. And you get 80% of what's called the high three average salary. And you can make that a little higher with sick leave. But that's pretty much all you had. Now, FERS, on the other hand, basically said, well, we're going to give you a pension, but we're going to de-emphasize that. What are we de-emphasizing? how much you pay for it. The CSRS people pay 
7% of their gross income, usually every two weeks into the pension fund. That's their share of what will produce their pension. The first people, at least the ones initially hired, are putting in less than 1%. And then there's always the pushback on the part of FERS thinking that, you know, we're getting a, a raw deal because our pension is so much smaller. Uh, you do the math. The FERS pension is roughly 53 to 54% the size of CSRS. They're putting in 0.8 of 1%. The CSRS people are putting in 7%. So tell me who's getting the bigger bang for the buck, even though it's a smaller pension. Now, to shore up some of the difference, FERS is covered by Social Security. So when you're actually paying into Social Security, you're going to get a benefit for those FERS years, or at least your Social Security is going to be pumped up considerably by the high income years in FERS. And that, when you add it to the smaller pension, might even get you 80, 85% the size of the CSRS benefit. Now you look at TSP, and remember, when TSP was instituted back in 1987, the first uh, people were allowed to put in 10% of income, CSRS only 5%, and it was anticipated it was going to stay that way forever. So we're giving you first folks, 10% of your income that you can tax defer, and we're going to match the first 5%. We're going to give you money on, on the government side of your account. 1% automatically will match the next, the 3% at uh, dollar for dollar in the next 2%, whatever it is, the 5% match. So when you think about that, <clears throat> Social Security, first pension, paying much less for the pension, a total of 7% for the two, Social Security and the pension. The real kicker is double the TSP contribution and matching. Now, granted, everyone can now contribute the same amount to TSP, but matching is only on the FERS side. And the lower contribution to FERS could also be something that goes away as time goes by, as has been proposed by Congress. But initially, uh, it was decided we're going to give you, a, we're going to de-emphasize the pension. You pay less for it, but you still get a good bang for the buck. You'll still get cost of living increases. Those will be a little bit later but that's because we're giving you matching TSP. So when you look at all of those things, you know, one might hedge and say, well, you know, I, I want to go with a given. I'm going to take that pension because I think, uh, you know, I have no idea what the market's going to do. But by the same token, you're still getting the pension. You're still getting Social Security, which comes very, very close when you add the two together to what a CSRS pension would be. And once again, the real capstone, the kicker, the thing that gives you the horsepower, the robust retirement, is a solid investment plan for TSP, which comes with government matching. So it would be difficult for me at this juncture to make a choice. Initially, I would have to say I did not transfer to FERS because I had no idea what it was going to be. I had no all I, all I thought of was, gee, the pension's going to be lower. And at that point in time, when FERS was launched, I already had 19 or 20 years of federal service. So it was it was a difficult lift for me, as it was for many people. I think the, uh, the transfer, those who switched plans in the initial opportunity in 1987, might have been 2 or 3% of the workforce. There was another open opportunity to do so in 1998, and it might have been 10 or 11% that switched. But people were comfortable with what they, were, what they had. Now, you know, if you really had a choice, if it were laid out in front of me, it would be difficult. It would be hard for me to choose. I'd have to look at it very closely. Well, with regards to that, with, when you work with people and uh, you know how the, the, the benefits grow and the care and feeding of the TSP and the like, do you find that people have a hard time? I mean, they have to. They're first, so they, they've, they've got to be looking at this. Do they have a hard time? Which do I take first and which do I hold? And I suppose some of that's got to do with medical, but let's uh, forget medical for uh, a bit. What's uh, when does the light go on with your clients and 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 they get it? I get it, or do they say, "Can we have another session, Bob?" Yeah, and you know it's it's a very good question, Bob. It's like when do I start? What you retire from federal civilian service, <clears throat> which is completely independent of when you start your social security, or when you start drawing down money from TSP, which recently was greatly enhanced as far as flexibility to do so. There was a modernization act of TSP in 2017, became effective in 2019, which gives people uh, the same degree of flexibility pulling money out of TSP as you would say in, a, in an IRA, uh, which used to be very, very 
very, very restrictive. So, you know, I think the real the real choice is when do I start my Social Security? I, I could do it as early as 62, particularly if I don't have working income that gets in the way. But should I wait? What's what's the basis for a claiming strategy? Am I, you know, setting up a higher survivor benefit for my spouse by waiting? Uh, am I concerned that I can't really draw it now because working income is restricted between 62 and full retirement age? Full retirement age for Social Security is somewhere between 66 and 67. That's when you get what Social Security calls primary insurance amount. Uh, it's 25 to 30% higher than the age 62 benefit. It's no longer affected by work. But now let's go a little bit further than that. Let's say, what if I wait until 70? Now you've got a benefit that's going up per year, 8% per year. So if I were coming to somebody like you, a financial expert, I would say, does it make sense, Bob, for me to wait for my social security, which is guaranteed in the next three years to go up, we'll say 24%, when in fact, you know, my assets, although they're doing well, when I look back at them 10 years, uh, kind of now it's volatile. You know, this year I only got 2%. Last year I got 10. I don't know what's going on. What makes the most sense for me? Should I wait for the social security or should I draw these other assets that aren't performing as well? And I mean, those are the kinds of things that people will wrestle with. We get questions about it. And then there's always concern about the solvency of Social Security, too. But each one of these things is separate. And I always suggest to people, I give them uh, the thought process, some of the things we're talking about now. But I say what you really need to do is figure out what your retirement goals and objectives are, what you're going to be doing, how much that's going to cost, and then talk to your financial person to come up with the best consolidation and strategy for when to draw what that's what i would do okay <clears throat> after you give this um, tutoring if you will to the individual do you find that they do go to seek advice from the financial side of life you're doing the benefits but you understand the financial but you know your bedrock is is bennies and I think that's harder than the financial. But anyway. <laughs> um, well, it's easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so um, do I'm sure some of them call back. Is there a common, gee, Bob, I didn't understand what you explained, and now I do. So what, Every what, now and again, that will happen. Yeah. Uh, I do hear from people who talk to a financial planner. I, I sometimes get... Uh, a request from them uh, that the financial planner that they're using smart as heck and they love them uh, because of their lack of understanding of federal benefits. Uh, can they bring me in on a conference call? So I might be able to explain some of these things. And I say, yes. What I also try to do too, is I'll often get questions like what can I do to find somebody who knows the financial side of the house, but who's also versed or has access to someone who is versed in federal benefits. And I do have a number of people that I, that I work with. We, we actually have presenters in NITP who are very solid financially, but uh, they're, they've been exposed greatly to the benefits side of the house and uh, they do private clients. So I, I refer work to them. The idea is to, is to vet financially, but the, the closer you can get to somebody who truly understands the federal benefits package, uh, the more relevant, uh, the more on point that financial advice is going to be. Yeah, I, uh, with regards to the shows we do, um, there seems to be a, um, more of a demand, if you will, for, uh, I call it Bennies and Bucks, um, uh, and not so much um, the other thing. There's there's nothing wrong with uh, a focus outside of that, but you worked an awful long time and you you know worked hard, so you're looking now for the benefits of that and the bucks. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, what, if, let's say you got somebody that's, they just don't know what to do. Now you can't give them advice and say, this is the best advice. But what do you do after saying the beginning, I can't tell you what to do, but this would be your benefit if you did X, Y, or Z. Not, sure. pro not promising I mean, I, them a rate of return or anything like that. Okay. Well, I, th I think the real pivot point for anybody and uh, may he rest in peace, Michael Creedon, who used to be our, one of our transition speakers at NITP, Dr. Creedon. One of the best things I ever heard him say is that you're, you're retiring to something, not from something. So it's a matter of putting a price tag on that lifestyle. What is it you're going to be doing? What kind of income will it require? 
And then the strategy to get to that level of income, assuming that you're not quite there yet. And if you are there, congratulations, surplus, whatever. But if you're not there, that's how you essentially, I think, position yourself financially. You're going to leave the government, you're going to retire, but then you have decisions to make with respect to when you're going to start Social Security, how are you going to keep investing your TSP, whether or not to roll it out uh, into an IRA, which would give you more investment potential, uh, more granularity, but then probably higher administrative fees. All of these things, again, uh, I, they're sort of outside of my wheelhouse other than theoretically. I mean, if I talk to anybody about things like this, I say, well, my financial guy, Bob Lyons, would tell me to do this or, you know, I, it's, there's no one size fits all. And that may be that's that could very well be the biggest conundrum that I face as a benefits uh, advisor. People tend to be looking for what I call silver bullet solutions, things that are going to be, you know, so I should enroll in this health plan or I should claim my Social Security now. Did I hear you say that you should do that? And I have to continually bring them back and say, no, what I did is I gave you the thought process. These are the things you need to be thinking about. And if you sort of fall into this category, you might want to do this or might want to do that. Well, what about my health insurance? Is this the best plan for me? I don't know anything about your health. I can tell you that you have these plan options. Uh, when you get ready close to Medicare, there are things that FEHB will let you do, the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. But whether those things are the things you need to do is something that you have to sit down and do the homework on, do an analysis of what your particular needs are against you know, risks, costs and make decisions for yourself. Uh, I can't, I can't unfortunately walk a mile in your shoes, but I can tell you that if you're in these shoes or those shoes, these are the decisions you might think about, but all I can do is give you advice and counsel on what your options are. And uh, people are looking for more than that sometimes. And I think they're, they're, they're a little disappointed when you can't give them a pat answer to a question. Yeah, but I agree. Do you ever get a, a situation where you're talking about uh, health care and they're going to retire, at, at, let's say, in early uh, retirement, not not in their 40s, but uh, late 50s or so, middle 50s. But whatever health coverage would take them to some date when Social Security is more attractive, then they could switch the coverage to a different uh, vendor, if you will. And that's a beauty part, I think, of the, uh, the, the federal employee health care system. This will sure. take me to where I need to go to age 69. And then this one, I'm going to get off of that train and I'm going to get on this other train that's designed more so for me. Do you find people don't know that? Yeah, a lot of people are finding out when they become Medicare eligible, even though the federal employees health benefits program for most retirees does not require in uh, enrollment in Medicare. If you are enrolled in Medicare, it pays first and then your health insurance pays second. You lose a lot of the cost sharing that you have with the plan. The Federal Employees Health Benefits Program has in recent years introduced what they call their own Medicare Advantage programs. Uh, FEHB plans that, number one, eliminate the cost sharing, no more co-pays, deductibles, co-insurance. And they also give you money towards the cost of the Medicare B pre uh, premium for a couple up to $1,800. The standard Medicare B premium right now is $148.50 a person per month. But if, you got, if, you have, if you're both paying that, uh, you can pick up one of these plans that FEHB offers that's more Medicare friendly or about half as expensive as the Blue Cross Blue Shield standard plan. And they give you money to throw at the premiums. So think about that. I mean, you might be in totally premium neutral territory. In other words, not spending any more than you were now, but now you have peace of mind wraparound coverage, Medicare paying the first 80%, health insurance paying the rest, uh, no more out-of-pocket costs for co-pays, deductibles, co-insurance. These plans work exceptionally well if you do enroll in Medicare A and B. And this has led to an uptick of many federal retirees getting into Medicare A and B who otherwise didn't before, because it gives them that wraparound peace of mind coverage at, in many cases, virtually the same or maybe even lesser premium costs because of the reimbursement they get. Uh, towards the Medicare B premium. Yeah, during open season, uh, we bring in um, uh, the vendors from various um, of the, the health insurance industry. And uh, the one that we always start off with is um, um, Walt Francis. And he has his checkbook guide to federal health care. And usually the first show each year, 
is he and Tammy. <laughs> and I just am spellbound. I, I could take notes and I couldn't tell you what, what they said. But, you know, they're, they're preaching to the choir, um, the federal employees. And I'm always surprised, though, the percentage of people that change is very small, despite all these opportunities. And it, it's not only the benefit of the opportunities, but the cost of the opportunities. And Andrews just uh, gave me the peace sign. You got two minutes. Um, so your opportunity is uh, do the best with two minutes. So, Bob, wrap up comments. Okay. <clears throat> you know, the devil is what you know with your health insurance. <clears throat> I always recommend people take a look at it every every open season. Read Walt's book. He's, a, he's brilliant. Tammy's brilliant. As far as what we were talking about today, the big takeaway is if you fall into an MRA plus 10 scenario, recognize that you have options. Understand that postponing your retirement is not the same as deferring. What you're doing is postponing pension. You're also just for a period of time postponing your benefits. Those all come back because you're eligible to retire. In a deferred scenario, you don't. So understand the difference in the terms. It's a great opportunity. And if you have replacement income and health insurance, my advice would be postpone. Perfect, perfect segue to the end of the show. Andrew has less than, I think, 10 seconds left for us. Anyway, thanks, Bob. Captivating, as always. Andrew, thank you for keeping us on the straight and narrow. And the guests, excuse me, the listeners, thank you. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.